You're welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, We'll be on pages 987 and 988. If you look at our church's statement of faith, the uh, last article, Article 12, reads like this. We believe in the personal and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the body, the final judgment, the eternal felicity of the righteous, and the endless suffering of the wicked. This is a description of the day of the Lord. Conspicuously absent from this article is anything having to do with any particular view of the millennium or the tribulation or anything like that. This article was written in such a way that any Christian who believes the Bible can agree with it. It is a bare-bones, no-frills, utterly distilled statement on the second coming of Christ. My question for you this morning is, do you believe it? I'm not asking you, of course, if you understand it, grammatically and syntactically. I'm not asking you if you understand the concept of the day of the Lord. What I'm asking you this morning as a Christian or someone who professes to be a Christian is, do you believe what the Bible says when it tells us that Jesus is going to come back to earth, rescue his people from sin and death, separate the sheep and the goats, put an end to this secular age as we know it, and fulfill the great hopes and fears of the godly and the godless. Do you actually believe it? As Christians, we don't have to know everything about the second coming of Christ. I don't. Nevertheless, what we believe about the future day of Christ's coming, it will influence the way that we live our lives. As a matter of fact, it will influence the way that we live every aspect of our lives. It'll influence the way we use our money, raise our children, pursue a career, the way we treat the oppressed and the marginalized, and it will even affect the way that we grieve for those who have gone on to be with the Lord before us. The Thessalonian Christians believed in the day of the Lord, but as a young church in the midst of harsh circumstances, it seemed like they were having some trouble connecting the doctrinal dots. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, we can see that the Thessalonians are not completely ignorant in their eschatology. Uh, If you don't know what that word means, it's just a fancy $2 word that means theology of the end times, okay? They they were not completely ignorant. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So it seems like they, they did understand something of the day of the Lord. Nevertheless, it seems like they may have had questions like, what happens to those who have died before Jesus comes back? And so as Paul moves from one portion of his letter to the next, he sets out to understand, or excuse me, to help them understand something of what that day will be like. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Paul understands that being uninformed about certain aspects of the second coming have left the Thessalonians in a state of spiritual angst. Perhaps some of these Thessalonian Christians thought that Jesus wouldn't rescue those who had died before his return. Why would they think that way? I don't know. Why do any of us think some of the silly theological things that we think? But Paul says that's not the way it's going to happen. So in chapter 4, verse 15, he kind of explains the order of operations. He says, actually, those of you who are alive when Christ comes back, you're going to be at the back of the line, okay? At the end of verse 16, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are still living will be called up together in one grand procession. This is often called the rapture, okay? And most of what American Christians believe about this event called the rapture comes from a very bad set of books called the Left Behind series. Have you heard of it? Yes, probably some of you had to grow up reading it. It was, uh, you know, the Bible and then the Left Behind novels in your house, okay? Uh, these were also made into a, a TV series. There were also two Left Behind movies. The sequel starred none other than Nicolas Cage, okay? Uh, if you're looking for a bad movie to watch on a Sunday afternoon, maybe go check that out. But in these Left Behind novels, the rapture is depicted as an event that's something more like what you would see in an episode of The Twilight Zone than anything that you find in the pages of Scripture, Readers of these left-behind novels are told that on that day, a wife, for example, will wake up and she'll find that her husband has disappeared from her bed. Well, what happened to him? Well, he was zapped out of bed silently in the middle of the night because he was a true believer. He was really faithful, but the wife and others like her, well, they weren't. So they're the ones who will be left behind. You see where the name comes from now? Friends, Scripture knows nothing of this version of the rapture. In this morning's text, Paul tells us that when Christ returns, he's going to do so in person. He's not going to use some spiritual teleportation device that beams people out of their beds and up into heaven in such a way that people will be left scratching their heads wondering what happened to their family members. Additionally, Paul says that when the Lord comes, everyone will know it. There will not be a question. People will not be left wondering what happened. The text tells us that there is a cry of command. That's kind of like a summons. That's where Jesus says, okay, all of my children come to me now. And he's going to do it in a very loud and dramatic way. It says that it will be thundered by the voice of an archangel, this cry of command. I have no idea what that's going to be like, but I imagine it's going to be intense like a nuclear blast wave reverberating throughout the earth, thunderous to the nth degree. All of this will be accompanied by the sound of loud trumpets, says Paul, which in the Old Testament 
cut out two things. One, the presence of the Lord. And two, battle. So the, Christ, the, the return of Christ is not going to be some private event that leaves us confused, scratching our chins, wondering what could have possibly happened. There will be no silent separation of the sheep and the goats. It will be a cosmic disruption. And we will not know that it's coming. Maybe. Some of us might be caught off guard. Chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that this day will come like a thief in the night. Look back there. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. If you've ever had your home broken into, you know that thieves do not announce their plans to break in. Thieves aren't in the business of letting you know that they're going to kick in your door, tie up your family, and steal all your belongings. As a matter of fact, the best thieves tend to strike in the places where we feel most secure, at the times when we feel most at peace. That's the language that Paul uses in chapter 5, verse 3, to talk about this phenomenon. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This uh, peace and safety language would have been very common in the Roman Empire. All these Roman citizens would have heard peace and safety, and they would have immediately thought about Caesar. That was his great promise to the citizens of the kingdom of Rome, right? The emperor will take care of you. The empire will give you the safety that you so desire. Trust in us. And Paul says that the day of the Lord will come when people are supremely confident in this kind of peace. When people are supremely confident that the day of wrath is far away. Now, as Paul moves through his teaching on the second coming, in your English Bibles, he moves out of chapter 4 into chapter 5. And when he does so, he shifts his emphasis, right? In chapter 4, his primary concern is to help these Thessalonians answer the question of what happens to those who have already died. Now, as he moves into chapter 5, he says, hey, I want you to spend a little less time worrying about those who are already gone to be with the Lord and I want you to spend a little more time worrying about yourself and making sure that you are prepared to meet the Lord on the day that he comes. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. He says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, but those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. As Paul calls the Thessalonians to a state of preparedness, he uses several different metaphors. This is a very Pauline thing. He talks about being asleep and awake, and he talks about being sober and being drunk, and he also talks about a soldier being prepared for battle. And by the end, he kind of mixes them all together. Let's think about that a little bit more. Uh, some people are allowed to drink on the job as part of their work. Not many, but you think about like a bartender, right? It's not only allowed, but it's also encouraged as a bartender to drink on the job. But most people aren't allowed to drink at work, okay? Uh, when I was in the military, 
Uh, it was not uncommon for soldiers to come into formation first thing in the morning, still slightly drunk from the night before. This was uh, accepted, although certainly not allowed. Okay, But on deployment, there was a zero-tolerance policy, a zero-tolerance policy uh, for drinking. Why? Well, because the stakes were so much higher. You could not be drunk on duty on deployment because, well, people's lives depended on you being sober-minded, prepared, ready to engage in battle. There's also something else in the military that if you've ever served, you're familiar with. It's called guard duty. If you've never served, it's the really unfun thing that you have to do where you, uh, if you're stateside, you pretend that you're uh, monitoring the premises, but when you are deployed, guard duty is a very, very, very important job. It's the last line of defense between you and your military cadre and the enemies who have somehow, way, gotten too close to your camp. You're the one who's supposed to ring the alarm bell if an attack has gotten close enough that it could strike and cause danger to the troops. This job is, of course, infinitely more important when you're at war than stateside. And if you are caught drinking while on guard duty or sleeping while on guard duty when you're deployed, you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Why? Because so much is at stake. You must be sober-minded. You must be wide awake and alert. And this is the image that Paul employs in this morning's text. He says, be like the soldier who stands ready and prepared at his post in a time of war. Be awake, be sober, be vigilant for the second coming of Christ. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. But we should feel like his return is imminent. And that should lead us to be prepared. Finally, in verses 9 through 10, Paul once again grounds what we must do and what God has already done for us. Look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. As we've been walking through 1 Thessalonians, you've seen that every time Paul grounds one of these commands for his people to walk in holiness, he does so in light of what Christ has already done for them. And that's what he does in this morning's text. He says, listen, I want you to be prepared, not so that you may have union with Christ on that last day. I want you to be prepared because you already have union with Christ. And I want you to be expectant. I want you to not be caught off guard when your union is fully and finally consummated on the day that Jesus returns. Okay, I've tried to give you the big picture uh, of the text this morning, chapters 4 and 5 on the second coming of Christ. For some of you, this is the stuff that you love to study. You want to just sit around and read books about the second coming. You want to make your own charts and have your Excel spreadsheets with data about the return of Christ. For some of you, you're like, please, Sean, hurry up. This is terrible. This is like my least favorite area to study in theology. And I totally get that. But I think we have some more digging to do. Uh, And I'll show you, let me show you why. Because of two things that Paul says 
in the text this morning. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now look at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Uh, Some churches love to fight about the details of the end times, and certainly some of it is worth fighting about. But when you read about the end times in Scripture, whenever you read about the second coming of Christ or the last day or the tribulation or the rapture, it's almost always brought up to encourage saints, to strengthen them for the sake of perseverance. And the same thing is true of this morning's text. Whether Paul is talking about those who have already died before the return of Christ or whether he's talking about your preparation for the return of Christ, he ends both of those sections by saying, This information is not just for you and your personal edification. This information is something that you are supposed to share with other Christians in your life as a means of encouraging them and stirring one another up towards spiritual maturity, towards steadfastness, towards preparedness. So with that in mind, uh, I would like to drill down into some of what we learned and encourage us with nine truths of application that we can remind each other of and speak about often as we wait for the second coming of Christ. They're going to be pretty quick, too. Point number one, remember. So point number one, remember. I want you to remember that you are going to die. You're going to die. Everyone you've ever known and loved is going to die. I really want this to settle in on you. I know it's so easy to push this kind of information to the back of your mind and to not think about it, to stay so busy, so involved, so active in your career, with your family, with your hobbies, that you forget the fact that one day you will not exist on this earth anymore. Your mother and your father, if they're still alive, they're going to die. Your children... They're going to die. There is no one that will live on this earth that will not once again close their eyes and cease to live on this earth. It is vitally important that you remember that this is true about yourself. If you find some way to just push this knowledge out of your consciousness and to neglect to think about your own mortality, you will not live your life in light of Christ's second coming. You will not properly orient your hope in this life. You will end up wasting all of your time and all of your talent and all of your treasure on things that ultimately do not matter. But when you remember that one day, a day that is going to be here sooner than you know it, Scripture says that life is a mist. 
It's like a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. If you forget that that's true, you will not live out your Christian life like you were supposed to. But if you remember that it's true, hopefully it will help you to properly align your priorities. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming points. Subpoint number two, hope. In 1971, John Lennon challenged his listeners all over the globe to imagine a different world. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Since uh, Lennon penned these words, it has become easier and easier for modern man to imagine such a world. No heaven, no hell, no God, no Christ, no day of wrath. Just today. If that's true, and you live to be 70, that means you'll have 25,500 days on this earth. And then nothing. What this means, if this is true, is that there is no meaning or purpose in this life. If John Lennon's philosophy is true, it means that your marriage is ultimately meaningless. It means that your children are ultimately meaningless. Your career, your pain, your suffering, your joy, your excitement, the wonder and awe, beauty, it's all just a pleasant byproduct of evolution that ultimately does not matter. None of it matters. Your emotions aren't real. They're just the way that the levers and pulleys of your brain are trying to process this physical world in which you live. If what Lennon says is true, then humans just live and die and live and die and will continue to do so, thinking that their lives matter, thinking that they have a purpose, thinking that justice is a concept that has a root in reality, when in fact none of that is true. When in fact one day we will all just be merely swallowed up in a massive heat death by the universe. So, you know, congratulations on your silver wedding anniversary and your promotion at work and your new baby because none of it really matters. And yet even the most skeptical atheists, men like Richard Dawkins, can't help but live like this is not true. They cannot help but live as if there is more to this life than their philosophy would allow. They love, they celebrate, they marry, they enjoy beauty, and they even grieve. People with a materialistic view of the universe still cry when their children die. Why? One of the most common questions that you'll hear a Christian ask when a loved one dies is, were they a believer? It's one of the first things that Christians ask. Hey, man, my uncle just died. Keep me in your prayers. Oh, man, I'm sorry about that. Hey, was he a Christian? We ask this question because Christians don't grieve like the world. We don't live in this hopeless state of affairs that John Lennon so beautifully describes in his song. No, we believe that there is life beyond the grave. And so we grieve differently. That doesn't mean that we don't grieve. 
Oh, we grieve. We can go deep into the valley. We cry. We, we feel like something's been stolen from us. When we lose a loved one, we feel like a limb has been amputated. But the difference for Christians is that hope eventually puts our grief to death. In the novel Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry, young Hannah loses her first husband uh, in the war. And as she wrestles through her grief, she feels like she can't ever stop thinking about her dead husband, ever stop grieving about him, because if she does, he'll disappear. Her memory of him, her grief over him, is the only thing that's keeping him alive in this world. And therefore, she can't stop grieving. Well, friends, that's not how Christians think about this life. We are content to let men die and pass away into the sea of forgetfulness. Why? Because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. So who cares if you forget me or remember me because Jesus won't forget us. And that frees us up to say with the old Scottish minister, live, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because our hope is not in whether or not people can remember us. Our hope is that when we die, we will get to go be with Jesus. Point number three, console. Turn with me real quick to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John chapter 11. <clears throat> In verses 11 through 14. After saying these things, he said to them, excuse me, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is Jesus talking about his cousin Lazarus. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But... Let us go to him. You know the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave? But what you may not have realized is that this, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples is the exact language that Paul and I think the rest of Scripture uses when it talks about Christians having fallen asleep in Christ. What's happening here? Well, Jesus says that Lazarus is dead, but he uses a euphemism to talk about his death. He says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, why does he talk about Lazarus in that way? Well, it's because he understands that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the grave. And when you have the power to raise someone from the grave like that, you might as well just talk about them as if they're asleep. In the same way that you can just push someone on the shoulder or call out their name and wake them up from a nap, that's as easy as it is for Jesus to raise someone from the grave. And that's the reason why Christians, when we talk about other Christians who have died, we tend to say things like, they've fallen asleep in Christ. I know that maybe you feel like you haven't heard a Christian say that recently, but that just was very commonplace in Christian history for 2,000 years to talk about those who had died as those who have fallen asleep. 
And we talk like that because we know that Jesus one day is just going to come and wake them up from the grave as if they were merely taking a nap. And so when we console our Christian brothers and sisters, we should do so with this reality in mind. Number four, teach. As we saw earlier, there are two different points in this morning's text where Paul stops and says, listen, I want you to use this information that I'm giving you to teach one another, to encourage one another, to stir one another up. This is very similar to the language used in Hebrews when it says to not neglect meeting together. Why? Well, because you're supposed to come together and encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So use this information, brothers and sisters, to teach one another, to prepare one another, to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. If you see somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, who seems complacent in their faith, bring them here to this text and show them that Paul says that there's no room for complacency in the Christian life. If you know of a family member who's all wrapped up in the end time stuff and left behind series and, and trying to predict the date of the rapture, bring them here and show them that that's not really the way that this stuff works. If you know a Christian who's grieving like the world grieves over the loss of a loved one, bring them here and show them that as Christians we don't grieve in that way. Point number five, doubt. Doubt. Paul says that Christ's return will come when we least expect it, when we feel most at peace and secure in this world. The easiest way for you to be caught off guard by the second coming of Christ is to feel at peace and secure in this world. The main way for you to not be caught off guard by the second coming of Christ is to not feel like this world is your home. I'm not talking about your peace and security in Christ. That is as certain as the pews that you're sitting on. It is real. But the peace and security that we can feel in this world, in this life, that is what will deceive you and have you caught off guard. I'm talking about the peace that comes from rising GDPs, improved health care, higher life expectancies, improved living standards, reduced levels of famine, strong stock markets, full 401k, medical technology that verges on the miraculous. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I do know that since the late 17, early 1800s, our lived experience as human beings has improved exponentially according to every metric that matters. And we are more prone, especially in affluent societies, to feel secure and at home in this world. So I want you to doubt those feelings of peace and security. I want you to remember that peace and security, this side of heaven, are always an illusion. Point number six, beware. I want you to beware of false prophets who try to tell you when the second coming of Christ will be. You may remember several years ago, a man named Harold Camping spent several months in the spotlight 
of American news media. The reason why? He predicted that the world would end on May 21st, 2011. And of course it didn't. It also didn't end on 2005 when he said that it would end. And it also didn't come to an end in 1994 when he said that it would. In chapter 4, verse 15 of today's text, Paul says that the Thessalonians, excuse me, he teaches the Thessalonians about the second coming, and he does so with complete confidence that what he's saying is from the Lord. Look there. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul has extreme confidence that what he is saying is from God. It is a word from the Lord. And he does not try to tell you when the date will be. He merely tells you the sort of order of operations. He's telling you some of the logistics of what that day will be like, but he doesn't try to predict that day. Friends, if Jesus said that no one knows the day and the hour, and if the Apostle Paul doesn't bother to venture the day or the hour, then you should beware of people who try to tell you the day and the hour of Christ's return. Point number seven, grieve. This text has something to say about the way that we grieve for those who have fallen asleep in Christ. But I think this text also has something to say about the way that we grieve for those who have died apart from Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is really good news, brothers and sisters. Paul says that those who are in Christ, we, we should not expect to endure God's wrath. We can expect salvation from God's wrath. But the obvious implication of this is that those who are in Christ will endure God's wrath. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. Paul says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We grieve one way for those who have died in Christ, and we grieve another way for those who have died apart from Christ. Our grief for those, our friends, our family members, our co-workers, even our enemies, who have died in their sins, our grief for them should be severe, significant, enduring, because of what God says that they are going to face, his wrath. It's only by his grace 
that we have been rescued out of that. So friends, it's not enough for us to merely grieve for them, but we must also tell them the truth about that day, which leads me to my next point. We must evangelize. Point number eight. Friends, we know the only person who has ever gone into the grave and come out the other side victorious. That means that we know the one who has the power to raise from the dead. That means we have the responsibility and the joy and the privilege of telling people about the wrath of God and about the great salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to merely be sad that people are going to die and face God's wrath. We must try to tell men the truth about that day so that they might avoid it. And when we do so, we cannot simply tell people about the day of resurrection. We must tell them about their personal need to be resurrected. We must tell them that they are dead in their sins, as dead as Jesus was in the grave. And we must call on them to repent to turn from their sins, and to be raised by the power of Christ. Point number nine, feast. When Paul says in these verses that we must use this information to encourage one another, what he's talking about is constantly reminding one another about the second coming of Christ. And the main way that we do this as a church, is when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I know that when we think about the Lord's Supper, we think about remembering what Christ has done for us by shedding his blood and by breaking his body. That's one aspect of it. We look, we look in the past at what Christ has already done. But I don't know if you've seen it before, but in Scripture, we're also supposed to use the Lord's Supper to look forward. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, This is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, remember, remember. Look to the past. Got it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as you remember, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Who are you proclaiming the Lord's death to? Well, to one another. You're strengthening and encouraging one another about what Christ has already done in light of what he's going to do when he comes back on that final day. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked you if you believed in the second coming. And if you're a Christian, the answer should be yes. But if we're being honest, sometimes our faith feels so small and weak in this life that sometimes our yes can feel like a no. And so we cry out like the Father in Mark chapter 9, who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And this is why things like the Lord's Supper are so important. God designed the Lord's Supper to be an institution that we celebrate together as a church so that we would remind each other and strengthen our faith in our moments of weakness and doubt and fear. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. And when we proclaim his second coming in the supper, we're not proclaiming it to outsiders, but to ourselves. That Jesus is going to come back and take us home. May we wait expectantly for that day. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word to remind us of eternal things, to keep us grounded in the truth. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would discipline us, that you would love us and encourage us so that we might be prepared when you come to take us home. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.